0: You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. For previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to this next episode in this mini-series about change in dairy. I'm speaking to a number of people about change and how the dairy sector might be influenced in the future. And today I'm speaking to Dr. Jude Clapper, who is a livestock sustainability consultant and animal scientist. Jude, thank you so much for speaking to me.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Today we're at Dairy Tech and the clue's in the name. There's a lot of a lot of tech on show um, and we've both been enjoying going around seeing the variety of stuff that is available. Let's start with technology, actually, and the changes that have been shaping the industry um, and the changes that might shape the industry going forward. Your take on that?
1: I was talking about this just yesterday. We were talking about driving tractors. Honestly, if, if I got into a tractor now, I would not know (laughs) what button to press. Last time I drove a tractor, was about 25 years ago. You got in, you turned the key, you put it into gear, and off you went. Now the technology is astounding. And I think that's one of the biggest changes that we've seen in the industry. On-farm tech, stuff with animal health, animal welfare, bonuses, sensors, GPS, and of course, the digital tech in terms of social media as well. I mean, it has revolutionized our industry, um, which gives us great opportunities, but is also, you know, it it is really quite a different place than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago.
0: Absolutely. So, let's go back to when you and I'm not going to give away (laughs) when exactly, but when when you entered the industry. on the animal science uh, stage, from you personally, what are the key changes that you've seen?
1: Well, not again to give anyway too many clues, but I got my first email address in the second year of my of my course at Harvard, so that shows quite how long ago it was.
0: There you are, listeners. There's a slight clue. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean. it, it, it it has been massive. I think the greatest thing that we've seen on the animal side is just how precise we can be now. You know, we can weigh, we can use ID tags, we can get so much information on an individual animal that's a sheep or pig or cow, whatever it might be. So we can tailor our breeding, our feeding, our housing, our management to that animal. And that's such a huge step forward, because obviously, if you have, you know, 1,200 cows, treating them as individuals and saying, hello, blossom some hello buttercup isn't very easy. But with the aid of data, we almost can do that, which gives us real opportunities in making the most of every single animal going forwards.
0: And also that's had impacts in terms of biosecurity.
1: Absolutely. I mean, which is a huge issue. And again, I was talking to somebody about this just yesterday. Um, biosecurity is so massive, probably more so from the pig and poultry industries than dairy and beef, obviously, but is a huge issue. And animal health and particularly the one health concept, so the interaction between animal health, human health and ecosystem health is becoming increasingly important for all of our farming
0: operations. Let's dive straight in with a nice big topic. Brexit. So, we're in a relatively more stable situation than we were a couple of months ago, um, post-election, and Brexit has now officially happened, which none of us, well, most of us didn't think it would actually ever happen, but it has. What's the likely impact in, in the short term, in terms of bringing more certainty? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. I have to admit, I was one who didn't think it would happen and hoped it did happen and hoped it didn't happen. and. In some ways, when it did happen, it just seemed to sort of happen and no one really talked about it. Um, The world hasn't come crashing to an end. The planet hasn't died. We haven't all, you know, fallen over. I think we at least have the certainty of knowing that we're out of the eu if if that's a positive and so therefore can plan accordingly i hate to be a doomsayer as it were i'm not sure that on a day-to-day basis we've got any more certainty than that at the moment there doesn't seem to be a real plan coming out that i've seen i think everyone's still a little bit up in the air thinking what do i do do i change things do i keep as i am you know i'm not sure I'm not sure we've got any more certainty, apart from the certainty that we are out of the EU, quite frankly. Having said that, I'm not sure things are going to change overnight, even given that. If we assume that we still want to trade with the EU, we're still going to have to abide by animal welfare regulations, milk hygiene regulations, etc. So I don't think we're going to see sweeping change overnight. Um, but there's no doubt that in the next year, two years, five years, you know, things are going to change considerably.
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think that's that's a key point which links into the agriculture bill, especially in terms of lack of clarity, really, in terms of still not being able to plan wholly. We know in broad terms that environmental policy is going to be a great shaper, um, as, it, as it has been uh, recently. But in, in terms of that in changing environmental policy framework, how do you think that's likely to impact on farm businesses on a on, on, on a micro level on on a, on a farm level?
1: We've got a lot of focus on carbon, rightly so, because that's an issue for. The retailer, the policy maker, the consumer. Um, it is difficult and it is confusing at the farm level. There are some farmers who are doing carbon footprints anyway as part of their milk sales, but there are an awful lot who aren't and don't know where to start. And it's complicated to a certain extent by the fact we don't have all the answers yet. We don't know the relative impacts of improving your milk yield versus cutting your age at first carving or using a jersey versus a Holstein versus an Ayrshire. And there's also some... Um, missing science with respect to carbon sequestration as well t- taking carbon out of the air putting it into the ground and we need better data there to frankly get a get a really good handle on carbon footprints at the farm level we can do a sort of generalization at the national level because of course that is always an average of an average but at the farm level we do need better data
0: That seems quite concerning, given that's meant to be the flagship side of where we're going in terms of policy.
1: Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, if we assess all farms using the same methodology, then at least we know that everyone's being assessed on the same basis, as it were, so we can fill in the data gaps as we go. Um, But the science is also changing. Methane was thought to be far more potent than it's now being thought to be which in some ways is good because it's going to make us look better compared to, say, pigs and poultry. Um, But on the other hand, that means that we may have focused very much on methane in the past and we should potentially be focused on nitrous oxide instead from crops and fertilizers on farm versus the cow herself. So we're going to see some quite big changes again, I think, there.
0: Let's move towards uh, changes in the market itself. Let's talk about organic um, and the relative rise and fall of organic. Mm -hmm. Um, In your opinion, how is that likely to change?
1: Organic's really interesting because, again, I was working in the States at this point about 10 years ago. Um, But when it first became a thing, it was going to be the biggest thing. Everyone was going to go organic within five years, let's say. And it gained quite a lot of shelf space, much in the same way that plant-based foods have now, actually. Um, It appeared to gain quite a lot of market share, quite a lot of shelf space. But I'm not sure it's got any bigger in the last five or so years. Partly, I think, because people just don't have the income, um, and it does cost more, you know. And so, ultimately, people want to know that they're paying for a premium product. And if they don't feel that they are, or if they simply can't afford to, then I don't think there's that much room for market growth. So it's still there. It's obviously still an option for quite a lot of people, but I'm not seeing the growth that we saw five years ago, 10 years ago.
0: And, and do you think that's largely to do with confidence from the farm level, or is that confidence from investors, or is that confidence from the banks? Why, why is that stalling?
1: It's certainly a fairly long and involved process. And to get the certification takes some years. And it is expensive. And you've got to be, frankly, good at farming to do it right. Because if you don't have your animal health in place, for example, going organic could be really difficult. But again, I think we've almost hit peak organic from the consumers. And there's only, if there's only so much demand, then there isn't a market out there for further Organic raspberries or apples or whatever it might be, and I simply think that that's because people have had less money to spend on food in the last, you know, five years or so compared to ten years
0: ago. We're at the beginning of February, which means we're at the beginning of February Dairy. Uh, you were pretty key key in, in the start of this. Um, for listeners who don't know, what is February Dairy all about, and when and why did it start?
1: So it started two years ago now. I stupidly first, well actually, to be fair, we were talking about it three years ago. Me, Amy Jackson and Emily North, and we only thought about it in January and thought, oh, we don't have time to do this, you know. So we we'll put it off. Two years ago, I was at the CMEX conference. We were talking a lot about plant based juices, you know, and so on. And I went, hey, let's do February on about the 7th of January, which was the <laughs> worst decision ever, because then I had six weeks of people being really angry with me, versus just four weeks of people being really angry with me. <laughs> what it is, it's to celebrate everything dairy. Emphasis on the celebrate, on the positive. You know, we have an amazing industry. We have beautiful pictures, beautiful landscapes. I'm honestly, you know, how would you do PR, for example, for the table industry or the concrete flooring industry. I don't understand how you'd make that cool and beautiful. But in agriculture, we have so many amazing pictures and images. We've got dairy cows, we've got cheese on toast, all those things. So it's simply about, for 28 or in this year, 29 days, putting out positive images of dairy. Simple as that. Um, But I have to admit, it got hijacked most instantly by a small proportion of vegans and i really 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 want to underline: and not all vegans are angry and not all vegans are activists but there are some vegans who are also activists and also angry who really jumped on this as a as a negative thing and pushed back pretty hard
0: so there is the obvious there's that obvious follow-up from veganuary yes february dairy is about a po- creating a positive image yeah. of dairy showing and, and it's an opportunity for the dairy industry to show off what it's doing, absolutely. but there is that link with Veganuary. How much of a change influence do you think those those vegans who count themselves as activists are actually having on dairy and uh, consumer choices?
1: Well, Veganuary has been really interesting. This year they had 400,000 people sign up. Last year it was 250,000, the year before 100 and something thousand. what I find really inter- interesting about that is the proportion of those who are already vegan or vegetarian who take on Veganuary. And I sort of, I have to admit, feel as if if you're vegan and you do Veganuary, that's just you going about your normal life for the month of January, as it were. I've got a lot of friends who are vegetarians; Some of them have taken up Veganuary, but almost like a challenge, like I will do this, The ones that I've talked to have then all gone, what cheese can I try on the 1st of February? So they've done it and they've undertaken it as a challenge to themselves. It doesn't seem to have changed their lifestyle. What I have seen, and again, I'm only talking about the the activist vegans here, the sort of people who on Twitter will call me a murderer and a rapist and, you know, all of these nasty terms, they don't seem to be getting any approval from people who don't have the same mindset. You know, in the same way that if you go to a pub and you see someone who's just drunk and loud saying, you're a sodding this, I hate you, you know, because you support this football team, whatever, whatever, That doesn't make you want to support that football team in most cases you know so being nasty being abusive being frankly horrible sometimes doesn't seem to be changing anybody else's minds because no one wants to be seen as being that person you know it's it's been really interesting because i will interact with anybody who asks me sensible reasonable questions and who actually wants to know the answer I'm really not interested in the sort of point scoring. I'm going to ask you this because I think I know the answer. And if you don't give me the answer that I want, I'm going to move on to something else. And then I'm going to move on to just effing and blinding and saying you're a nasty person. You know, that doesn't change anybody's minds.
0: And yet it continues.
1: And yet it continues. (laughs) And this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, Twitter is great for so many things. It's also an outlet for so many people in so many ways. And believe me, I've also seen farmers who've said things where I've gone, you should not have said that. And why have you just told that person to go and do whatever? You know, I mean, I am absolutely not saying that the farming industry is whiter than white. And we all get frustrated. And I have days where I just wish I could just say, just sod off, you know, you're a nasty person. Social media is so interesting because we can talk about things with people all over the world at any time of day, and it should be great, but it's often used as an outlet, I think, for whatever else is wrong in people's lives to get very angry
0: about. Let's take that actually as a broad point then, and and the change influence of social media, which has been, talked before we started this interview, that it it has transformed not just what we're talking about, but just ways of life for a lot of people. How is social media likely to be used, do you think, in future? Is, is it, in the case of Twitter, small groups of people having conversations? Or does social media actually have a bigger change influence in terms of the way that people are actually consuming products?
1: I think it's got a huge influence, um, not just with those of us who've been using it for 10 years, but for all the teenagers who are coming through now. I mean, frankly, when I look at my partner's children, who are 13, uh, 16, and 18, um, they're on Snapchat and Instagram, you know, 24 seven. And when you look at how people consume news now, when we look at 16 to 24 year olds, over eighty percent of them get it from the internet. And when I say news, this isn't, you know, going to bbc.co.uk, news becomes anything that you didn't know before. So it could be a blog post, it could be an activist advert, it could be a billboard, it could be anything that's new to you. So that gives us huge opportunities to change people's minds and help people think about things. It, it also potentially can be damaging for any industry with the bad news stories that previously would have been on one little bit of a newsletter or pamphlet handed out in a city center on a Saturday. Now these things go all over the world. You know instantly so we really have become a far more global society with the advent of social media i think and again opportunities but you know threats as well
0: what are the role of milk alternative products dairy alternative products we've got the influence on on the beef sector mm-hmm. especially but we've also got the influence on dairy as well mm-hmm. how do you think that's likely to change um, moving moving ahead into the next few years
1: as people we like diversity. We like to try different things. You know, I've tried a Mars bar. Now I'm going to try Twix. Other chocolate products are obviously available. <laughs> Thank
0: you for that.
1: <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we like to try new things, and we. And we all like to try new things, let's face it. The question is whether those things can hold our attention, be as delicious, nutritious, etc. And in some cases, we'll go, actually, I prefer product X to product Y. And in others, you go, oh, I tried that stuff. I mean, my daughter tried a vegan sausage roll put out by a popular high street bakery recently, simply because my mum bought it by mistake for her. And she said, I really don't like it, mommy. It was awful. I had a vegan sausage roll. And she's five, so she wouldn't have had any awareness of really what that meant, apart from this didn't taste like the one that she normally tastes, you know? So I think it's really great that we have lots of alternatives. I mean, honestly, I do, because that gives anybody who's lactose intolerant, who simply doesn't like milk or dairy, those options. And they weren't around, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I sort of feel like it's going to be a little bit like organic, you know, there will be the people who actively prefer oat juice or soy juice, whatever it is, and that's totally up to them. Is it going to change my grandma, for example, who is 90 from drinking milk to drinking something based on plants? I think it's massively unlikely. So we will see more and more people trying them and more growth in the sector but only up to a certain point. And I think it's highly unlikely that in five years time, you know, 90% of people will be drinking oat and rice at the expense of actual cows milk or sheep or goats or cows.
0: So we've been through some consumer influence changes. Let's turn towards some uh, policy, um, policymaker influence changes. Um, we've mentioned briefly environmental policy. Um, what for you are likely to be the biggest change influences, again, on a dairy micro-farm level, that are likely to influence farmers' choices?
1: Honestly, I don't think it'll be policy in terms of policymakers and government. I think it'll be retailers and processors because they can make changes to your operation instantly by saying, we don't want you to use practice X or medicine Y. And we've seen that to some extent with the changes in medicines use for example which have been really good and which is in an attempt to cut antimicrobial resistance which is all very very good but as i say any processing company any retailer can instantly say in my supply chain i don't want x and y animals given this animals that have had this done to them so they can have the biggest influence far more than policymakers so i think we're going to see things in terms of carbon monitoring animal health monitoring antibiotic use Um, we've seen in dairy for example prescribed prescribed grazing in terms of it must be 120 days a year 180 days a year For some farms, that'll be really easy. You know, some farms already monitor carbon. They look at their antibiotic use. They are a grazing operation simply because their operation allows that. For others, that's going to be really tricky. Um, I think it's really positive. For example, Arla and Morrison's have the dairy bull calf um, program in place such that bull calves won't be slaughtered on farms. But for some farmers, again, if you've only got 40 cows, let's say, and you're calves come from a Jersey cattle, you know, the market isn't there at the moment. So we've got to think about the bigger picture when we make changes that influence farmers at the national level, but also at the farm level.
0: I was talking with John in the last episode about the changing size of the national herd. I am um, just interested in your predictions of, of how we're going to see uh, that change.
1: It's going to be a combination of factors that affect it but i think the same trends are going to continue and these are global trends not just national trends or rather i should say global chain trends in the developed dairy industries so us most of europe new zealand australia the states and that is such that we are going to have fewer cows not because people aren't drinking milk but simply because we get more milk yields per cow so to make x amount of milk we need y percent fewer total animals we will probably see fewer total farms but again because of consolidation not because everybody's out of business and it's all rubbish simply because those who are less good probably will go out of business but particularly with the changes to the farm bill But on the other hand, that productivity and that land will be used by others. So we'll have fewer total farms, fewer total cattle, but there's no reason that we can't make the same or more milk going forwards.
0: And on that basis, if you were advising um, a herd manager of, say, an average size, uh, about 150 uh, Holstein's or so, Mm -hmm. um, what would you be advising um, to enable growth?
1: It sounds really glib. Do everything you do better. You know, on any dairy operation, you know where there are KPIs, key performance indicators, where you're just not quite as good as the other people. Could be age at first carving, could be conception rate, could be milk yield, could be milk solids. Everyone knows where they're just not quite as good as other people get all of those right and you're in a pretty good place but then try to look ahead as well what is gonna come down the line in the next couple of years what are the retailers or all the process is going to be asking you to do where you can say I'm already looking at biodiversity I'm already looking at antibiotic use I'm already looking at alternatives to calf. Rearing systems, for example, think ahead to what's coming down the line, not just ticking the boxes with the things that we're doing at the moment.
0: And retailers are fundamentally going to be interested in the changing consumer choices and changing consumer demands. What are those likely to be? Sorry, there's a massive question.
1: That's a really good question. Animal welfare is really paramount, and I think it's going to continue to be, frankly. Um, I I honestly don't think people are going to stop wanting milk and cheese and meat. I mean, honestly, I I just don't think it's going to happen. We may see a move towards the sort of eat less but better, and I think for British agriculture, that gives us a real opportunity. You know, if we can produce more here, if we can be more sufficient in in, in cheese, in meat, for example, we have a huge opportunity, not just a threat. Um, but we've of us just got to be better to fulfill those requirements.
0: And ultimately, we are still competing in a global market.
1: Absolutely. Precisely so. Which is why we have to be better. And again, it sounds very glib saying, buy British, but we have a good selling point for our industry. And there's a lot of fear mongering about imports from the States, for example, in terms of you know chlorine chicken and hormone beef and so on. And quite a lot of that is fear-mongering without the science behind it necessarily, but we do have a very productive, very efficient, very balanced industry and we have to sell that better both to the processor but also to the consumer.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that message isn't necessarily always, always on, on the on the front or middle pages of the papers.
1: That's exactly it. Bad news sells. Good news doesn't sell. Which is why I think the Daily Mail and other newspapers um, exists, quite frankly, because some papers do trade on you know negative, negative, negative. And we are programmed as people to read those things more than me. Everything's happy and sunny and it's a nice day outside. And here's a pretty picture of cats. You know, it just it just doesn't happen.
0: Jude, thank you so much for talking to me. We've covered a lot of ground there. What are you going to do in the show?
1: My absolute pleasure. First of all, I am going to try and look at some of the stands. But at all of these shows, I see 150,000 people who I know and I have to catch up with all of them. So the chances are I'll make it to about two stands. and I'll be time to go home. <laughs> but it'll still be fun. <laughs>
0: Have a great day! Thanks so much. Thank you, you too, Jude Kapper, who spoke to me at Dairy Tech twenty twenty. Now, I know I've certainly learned a lot from this mini series so far. I hope you've been able to get an impression of some of the big change influences that are happening in the dairy sector, from environmental policy to changing consumer habits and the influence of social media. Going way back to Matt Swain's episode at the beginning of this mini series. I'm also taking away the story that we need to be aware of what happens to people, both groups and individuals, when we go through significant change. And I think we should be aware of how the potential changes that we've been discussing might impact on farmers themselves. Next time, I'll be speaking to a vegan which is a first for this podcast, but I think it's important that we respect all points of view and allow for points of view to come into the open so that we can come to our own decisions knowing that we've opened ourselves to a very plate of perspectives. So that'll be a conversation with Kerry Waters, a spokesperson for Animal Rebellion. I really want to thank Kerry a lot as quite a few people turned down the opportunity to fill this spot in this Change in Dairy miniseries before she took it up. So... I hope you can join me then. Please follow us on Twitter at Meet the Farmers. Uh, that's it's at MTF underscore podcast um, or Meet the Farmers podcast and subscribe to the podcast where you normally listen if you haven't already. Meet the Farmers is now on quite a few listening platforms, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and I'll see you next time.